Good evening. Excuse me. I hope I don't stuff that up for you, Brie. Wherever you are. <clears throat> so, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you that um, we can have this opportunity to look at this passage. Um, just help me to speak clearly your word and uh, faithfully pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So up until this point throughout Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus has been forming miracles of various kinds and teaching about the kingdom of God, you know, his usual uh, stuff. Uh, in the last week's message, we heard that Jesus asked his disciples in light of uh, all that he's been doing and saying, who do you say that I am? Or who do people say that I am? Uh, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. Then he asks the disciples themselves, who do you say that I am? And Peter declares, uh, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. So this is a, this is a monumental high point in the gospel. Uh, finally, somebody recognises uh, with certainty who Jesus is. He is the Christ. But as I say, you know, what goes up must come down. And Peter comes crashing down hard in our passage tonight. It's one of Peter's highest highs and his lowest lows in what seems like moments. Yes, he understands that Jesus is the Christ. He understands that he's the one sent by God to uh, complete a specific mission. He understands that he's the one who uh, Israel has been... Uh, expecting, anticipating for a long time. But he doesn't understand the nature of his mission. He doesn't get it. Jesus says what he's come to do and Peter rebukes him. He rebukes the one he just proclaimed to be the Christ. He tries to talk him out of what he's come to do. And this is where we pick it up again tonight. So let's uh, read together from Mark 8 verse 31. Let's have a look together. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This teaching of Jesus is a prediction of his death and it was a bombshell for the disciples. It shocked them something chronic. This was their master who they'd been doing life with. The one who had been healing the blind, healing the sick, uh, walking on water, multiplying loaves, all, all those types of things. The one who was teaching him about the coming kingdom of God and his rule over the nations. But their understanding of this kingdom and how Jesus was going to rule it was misunderstood. They thought he's come to overpower Israel's enemies and lead the nation to a military victory. Israel would then live in peace and tranquility and, and uh, you know, they would, they would sit at the right hand of the king, at the right hand of the Christ uh, as they received glory. The kingdom for them was understood in geographical terms and, and military victory over the Romans. But Jesus says nothing of the sort, does he? Jesus says openly and plainly that he must suffer many things be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again. 
So how could he possibly lead his disciples to victory if he's dead? See, the concept of a Messiah who suffers was totally absurd and foreign to them. That's why Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. In Matthew's account, Peter says to him, uh, Peter's rebuke is, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. See, he's trying to talk Jesus out of it. He thinks he knows better than God himself. Peter doesn't want him to be killed. He thinks he knows a better way. But even if his intentions are good, Jesus counts Peter's rebuke as nothing less than satanic. Get behind me, Satan, he says. That is a stiff rebuke. Now, these are the same words Jesus used in uh, Matthew 4 to rebuke Satan himself when he was in the wilderness. In other words, what he's saying to Peter is, get out of my way. I have come to do the will of my Father. Don't try and stop me. I have come to save. I have come to bring victory, but it's got to be done my way, not yours. And this is the real problem. This is uh, the real problem for Peter. He's not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. His little human mind struggles to see beyond his present circumstances. He wants an earthly military victory, but Jesus wants a heavenly, eternal victory. Peter is likely thinking if Jesus dies, he loses his leader, so they lose the victory, and so they lose any hope of glory and praise that might come their way. See, Peter has his mind set on the things of man. But how often is this true of us too? How often do we think we know better than God himself? How often do we want him to submit to us and to our plans and to fit into our schedule because his ways seem uncomfortable, unfair and unfitting? We resist him, we fail to submit to him because our little minds are set on little things. Our minds are set on the temporary things of this world. Our minds are set on all the stuff we don't have. Our minds are set on the earthly treasures that bring short-term comfort, short-term pleasure and short-term power. But these are nothing but a mist. They set us up for failure because they fade away, well, they will fade away, They don't last and they cannot save. There is no value in them. So Peter has his moment of glory. He says, you are the Christ. He proclaims that. And he's right. But then he has his moment of gravity. Far be it from you, Lord. Don't be ridiculous. You've got it wrong. And Jesus says, this is nothing less than satanic thinking. And at this point, Peter is the disciple of of darkness. Are there any parts of your life right now where you're intentionally telling God he's got it wrong? If you're not sure, look to the areas of life where you're deliberately disobeying God. Search those areas of your conscience that are weighing heavy at the moment and I reckon you'll find something. I reckon you'll find something. I know I did. So why did Jesus rebuke Peter so harshly? When Jesus told them plainly 
what he was going to do. He didn't say he was thinking about suffering, dying and rising again. He didn't say he may or may not do it, as if it were an option. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer, the Son of Man must be killed and he must rise again. And this is why Peter copped it, because he was preventing Jesus from doing what must be done. He was in the way of Jesus carving the cross-shaped path that's going to bring victory the way God wants it, the way God designed it. The cross-shaped path that Jesus makes will be the only one to follow for those who wish to enter the kingdom of heaven. He came to atone for the sins of mankind. You see, from eternity past, he wanted us and he loved us and he made us knowing that we would all turn away from him, that we would all sin against him. And in his great love for us, it was planned from the beginning that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would enter human history as a man. God would enter his own creation to make the way for sin to be dealt with and for relationship to be stored, to be restored. Jesus didn't come to lead a military victory and he didn't come to sit in glory on some man-made throne in a man-made kingdom. He came to make a way for complete and utter victory over Satan, sin and death. He came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give us himself. And this is why he rebuked so harshly. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, is the only one who could do this. There is no other. There is no other. He lived the life we cannot live. He died the death we deserve to die. And he did these things in our place for our sin. Jesus' perfect life and death on a cross was all for us and our salvation. His suffering and death was necessary to atone for our sin. It had to happen. Without the shedding of his blood, our debt couldn't be cancelled. Without the sacrifice of his body on a cross, God's law wouldn't be satisfied. If he didn't bear the full wrath of God upon himself on the cross, then we would have to in eternity. For all eternity. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die and rise again from death so that we might be justified in the sight of God. Thank you, Jesus. Now this is, this is pure grace. This is pure grace. Heaven itself has been purchased for you and for me. We deserve nothing but physical death and spiritual death. We're rebels who have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, fallen short of the glory of God. We've all told God that he's got it wrong. We've all told God that we're going to do life our way and not his. We've all spat in his face. We've all turned our back on him. And yet... He has pursued us from the day we were born. He loved us from before the foundations of the earth. What a gracious and loving 
and caring and personal God. Jesus has proven his love by becoming like us to suffer and die in our place for our sin. His resurrection proves that his words and promises are true. He's proven that he is the way, the truth and the life. And he's proven that the way to life is through death. And in that, he's proven that his plans are perfect, deliberate, effective and unstoppable. This bit. Excuse me. Do you realise that at the very moment Jesus was foretelling his death to his disciples, he had you in mind? He had you in mind. You weren't even born. You weren't even created then. As he was mocked, beaten, flogged, as each nail was driven through his flesh, as the wrath of God was poured out on him, he had you in mind. And even as you sit here in this very room, even as you sit in that seat, he has you in mind. He's calling you. He wants you. He loves you beyond measure. You see, the kingdom Jesus was bringing wasn't and isn't some ancient ancient historical fairy tale. It's the reality of all of life. We're made to be in relationship with the one true living God, Jesus Christ. To be part of his kingdom is to call him king and as king, in humble submission and great trust, let him rule and reign over our lives. The kingdom of God is for you. And the King Jesus himself is inviting you to enter. He's inviting you to come and follow him into that kingdom. Or maybe return to that kingdom. The the question is, will you accept his invitation? Sometimes God's ways are hard to understand, aren't they? The disciples found Jesus' prediction of his death hard to understand. But what they're about to hear next is even more difficult. Let's read uh, verse 34 together. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So now Jesus has called the crowd over with the disciples and he presents them with an offer. He presents them with an invitation. But this invitation isn't like any other. It's unique. It's not an invite to a birthday or a wedding or a formal or an awards night or anything like that. But his invitation to anyone who wants to follow him is to come and die. He invites them to die. As if the disciples haven't been shocked enough for one day hearing that Jesus is going to die. 
that their leader must suffer and die. And now they're being told the same thing. Just as it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die, he tells them that anyone who wants to follow him must do the same. By telling them that they must deny themselves, he's talking about giving up God-given rights and privileges even in the face of suffering, just as he did. Jesus came from a place of glory where he was worshipped continually and rightfully and perfectly because he's God. But in becoming man, he denied himself of his own rights to come and serve his creatures, even letting them nail him to a cross. Jesus is saying to them that there must be a radical shift in thinking. There must be a radical shift in concern for themselves to a concern for the will of God. He's saying they must be willing to say no to themselves and yes to God. Jesus uh, reinforces what he's already said by adding the imagery of the cross. When he says to take up the cross, he's not talking about putting up with some inconvenience or hardship. He's talking about fully fledged and, and complete, utter devotion and allegiance to him and nothing less. Jesus says, following me means to deny yourself. Following me may even cost your life. And those who are listening to this, those in his presence at that time, are feeling sick in the guts right now because crucifixion was a very real and common reality in this point of history. Crucifixion was reserved as the most shameful and humiliating death possible. And taking up the cross is a picture of somebody walking to their death with the crossbar on their backs, being mocked, ridiculed, abused and hated all the way to the end of their life. But his emphasis isn't physical death, even though it may happen, like it's happening today in the Middle East. What Jesus is saying here is that self-denial and cross-bearing is continual Christ-centred allegiance all the way throughout their life. It's to be a continual process of saying no to self and yes to God. And doing this will most likely attract ridicule and hatred from others. For someone to bear their cross, it means that they're walking to their death. It's a one-way ticket. And this is the life that Christ was inviting them to take part in. And this is the life he's inviting you to take part in. Once again, the question is, how will you respond? How will you respond to this invitation to die? I just want to be clear on a couple of things here. Living a life of self-denial and taking up your cross does not save. Salvation is purely a gift of grace. Salvation comes only from faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
See, Christ has done all the work on the cross. He said so himself as he hung there. It is finished. It is complete. The gift we've been given from God is salvation. And it's the result of him giving us himself. For all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, he has promised to send the Holy Spirit into their hearts, which not only provides complete assurance of salvation, but he's the power by which we can live transformed lives. The Holy Spirit is the means by which our minds are renewed. This is the only way possible for us, for any of us, to take our minds off the things of man, to take our minds off ourselves and to set our minds on the things of God. None of us would never, ever, naturally deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. None of us would ever naturally accept his invitation to die to ourselves and to live to him. But through faith in him we can. And this life will be the external evidence of the internal change. It will be the fruit and the proof of a genuine faith, a saving faith in Christ. Salvation begins with denial. But it's not the denial of something, but it's the denial of someone. It begins by denying yourself, by denying the very person who killed Jesus Christ. It was your sin that crucified the Son of God and mine. Salvation begins by denying that person. Dying to that person. And the place to start is to claim the free and total forgiveness that's available in Christ. You see, denying ourselves and taking up our cross is about full commitment to God in light of his full commitment to us as he's displayed on the cross. He set the prime example for us to follow. 1 John says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So it's foolish to think that we're going to enter heaven without facing any trials or suffering or conflict here on earth. Because we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world with broken sinners who only have their minds set on things of man continually all the time. But we're different. We've been brought into the family of God. We're sons and daughters of the living God. Our salvation is secure. Our identity is in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. And so we can set our minds on the things of God. We can follow Christ's example even when we don't understand his plan for our life. And that's exciting and that's freeing. Because we are... We're different because we are free to die to ourselves and let him lead. This is what following Christ means. It means to let him lead. It means to be immersed in his word so that we know what he expects from us. It means praying in desperation for help to live that out. It means when we're getting peer pressured, ridiculed, and hated by the world because we're living it, we don't budge. We stand firm 
even though it's going to hurt. We stand firm and honour Christ in obedience because he's the one worth honouring. No one else. But it's not going to be easy. God knows our hearts are deceitful above all things. And what our hearts want, our minds justify. On top of this, Satan himself will try in all ways possible to distract, deceive and destroy you. Satan likes to sail with the wind. He'll find your weaknesses. He'll lure you away from your calling. But thankfully when we do slip up and fall into sin, we have forgiveness in Christ and can start fresh. And that's why we have to die to ourselves daily. We need to put to death the sin that remains in these bodies daily. We must crucify the flesh daily. Resist the devil daily. Put to death our worldly passions and desires daily. We must put an end to our love for things of this world daily. (laughs) The great paradox here is that by dying to yourself, you'll actually find life, true life, eternal life. Look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever denies himself and takes up his cross and follows me, for my sake and the gospels will save it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And the world will ask, why do you bother living this way? What do you like being boxed in by rules? You seem so restricted. But don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. When you hear things like that, you can be assured that it's no less than the voice of Satan himself speaking through the mouth of those who are still under his control, who are still enslaved to sin. We're not like that. We're different. We're slaves to righteousness. And absolute freedom can be found by surrendering to Christ. Because all of a sudden, obedience to him becomes our greatest joy. Serving others becomes our greatest joy. Reflecting the same love that he showed us becomes our greatest joy. You know the feeling you get when you love and serve others? It's a gift from God. And it's nothing compared to what he's got waiting for us when he returns. But the world says, nah. The world says, do all that you can, get as much stuff as you can, and feel as good as you can for as long as you can, and do it as quick as you can. And that's rubbish, that's a trap that leads to death. And the creator of the universe says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Nothing. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. 
Apart from God yourself, your life, your soul is precious above all other things. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He's proven that by making the way for anyone who would believe in him. There is no other way. Even if you had the universe in the palm of your hand, it cannot save your soul. Only Christ can do that. But you can lose your soul. It can be lost through clinging to this world instead of letting it go. Verse 38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The adultery here is spiritual adultery. Worshipping created things instead of the Creator. It leads to hell, and that's the way the world works. Just walk in any shopping centre, particularly at Christmas time, and you'll see what I mean. There's worship everywhere, but it's not of the Creator. It's worship of stuff. Be wise. Don't listen to the world. Don't lose your soul to its temptations, because everyone will give an account for their life when Christ returns. And if you've chosen the things of this world and rejected the creator of this world, you will perish forever. So for the sake of Christ and the gospel, it's time to say goodbye to habitual sin, whether that's thought, word or deed. It's time to say goodbye to lust, porn and adultery. It's time to say goodbye to the boyfriend or girlfriend who's causing you to dishonour your body, your parents and Christ. It's time to say goodbye to unlawful dealings that make you or your boss extra cash on the side. It's time to say goodbye to your spare time, money and resources because there's so much need in this world. It's time to say goodbye to some of your hopes and dreams because God has clearly called you elsewhere. It's time to say goodbye to finding your identity in the best car, in the best house, in the best job, in your kids, in popularity, in approval of others. It's time to say goodbye to selfishness and say hello to other-centred living, gospel living. It's time to say goodbye to you. See, God wants to use you in this life to do great things in this kingdom. For his kingdom, but he needs you dead first. He's done all the work. The choice is now yours. So, who do you say that Jesus is? If your answer is the Christ, then it's time to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And through death to self, you will receive life everlasting. That promise is guaranteed. I just want to pray to close um, from this little doozy of a book. It's just got some prayers recorded from people in history. They're anonymous. Thought it would be a good model, perhaps. Would you bow with me?
Oh, Saviour, help me, help us. We're slow to learn, we're so prone to forget, we're so weak to climb. We're in the foothills when we should be on the heights. We're pained by our graceless hearts, our prayerless days, our poverty of love, our sloth in the heavenly race, our heavy conscience, our wasted hours, our unspent opportunities. We are blind while the light shines around us, take the scales from our eyes, grind to dust the evil heart of unbelief. Make it our chiefest joy to study you, to meditate on you, to gaze on you. Make it our chiefest joy to sit like Mary at your feet, like John on your breast, like Peter to your love, to count like Paul all things dung. Give us increase in progress in grace so that there may be more decision in our character, more vigour in our purposes, more elevation in our lives, more fervour in our devotions, more constancy in our zeal. As we have a position in this world, help us from making the world our position. May we never seek in the creature what can be found only in the Creator. Let not faith cease from seeking you until it vanishes into sight. Reach forth into us, O King of kings and Lord of lords, that we may live victoriously and in victory attain our end in life everlasting. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to sing one last song to finish off the service tonight. Uh, We're going to sing This Life I Live, and I just um, pray that this would be almost an answer or our response to uh, what we've heard tonight and what God's um, laid on your heart. So would you please stand with me?